Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello, you're listening to Animal Party on Pet Life Radio with me, Deb Wolf. And today we have Grant Brown coming back to us from happyeconews.com and we had a previous show so we could introduce you to the website and the topic and everything Grant's doing and I promised I'd have him back to delve into some of these topics these amazing topics so welcome back Grant well thanks for having me back Deb this is great well we we just touched on things last time happyeconews.com you started it because well you were basically sick of all the bad news right yeah, you know what? It was getting to me. And uh, I think a lot of people are feeling that right now. There's actually a clinical term for it, and it's called eco-anxiety or climate grief. And I think that it's basically just a sort of an accumulation of so much bad news that it's almost hard to take. And, you know, you're not crazy if you're feeling it. It's a totally natural reaction. And I've, talkin- I've talked to psychologists who suggest that, you know, eco-anxiety is a normal reaction to an existential crisis or a feeling of fear. And so I'm here to try and help. Well, you know, we, on our last show, we touched on the teenage problem. And I really experienced this myself with two teenagers that they're just raised in this kind of, it's like a swimming pool of hopelessness. Nothing will ever change. The world is coming to an end. The pollution is taking over. The baby boomers ruined it for you all. And it seems like uh, they just can't find any good eco news anywhere. So you've got Happy Eco News, and loads of it, thousands of articles that have come out that we just don't hear about. I think the mainstream media likes fear instead of hope, but these are really good stories. And so I want to touch on a few of them. Can you tell us about this idea that wood chips are cleaning water? Yeah. So the story is called How wood, the Humble Wood Chip is Cleaning Up Water Worldwide, and that's available on Happy Eco News. So basically, researchers at the University of Illinois have been studying the use of wood chips to reduce the amount of nitrogen that comes out of farms. Uh, and all types of agriculture produce an excess amount of nitrogen when they're done in a commercial manner. So this is a really interesting process because basically you just create a trench in the ground and you filter wastewater through the trench and there's a reaction and it's uh, called uh, denitrifying bioreactors. And they come in all shapes and sizes. And this is the most simple. It has about 40% effectiveness, which is quite good. And um, the great thing about it is that it could be deployed virtually anywhere. So it could be a developing country where they don't have access to high technology or expensive equipment. Take some wood chips, dig a trench, put the wood chips in the trench, run water through it and the reaction is uh, reducing the amount of nitrogen in the water. There was some concern about off-gassing, and what they found is that the only um, the gases that are created by this process are actually completely harmless, and they're not a greenhouse gas. So it's a real win-win for, for the environment and for farmers, because I think most farmers that get into it are, you know, they like animals and they like plants, and they, they're hands-on type people, and they're very, very practical, uh, generally speaking. And then, um, you know, in this commercial world that we live in of high tech and, you know, mass production of food, it's not a natural process. I think historically, 
you know, small farms would have been, um, you know, mom and pop operations where you've got a couple of cows, a few chickens, a vegetable patch, and it becomes a closed loop. So the, the waste from the animals then gets put into compost, the compost gets put into the soil, the soil grows plants, and the waste plants feed the humans and the animals, and then the cycle continues. But in commercial operations, it's not like that. And um, there's all this waste nitrogen that gets created from that process that doesn't get used anywhere. And so it can create real havoc in the environment. Yes, I totally understand that. On a small level, you want to use everything because your margins are so slim. You can't afford to waste anything. But when you're doing something on commercial scale, it's all about the time. You don't have time to reuse things, right? So everything changes and your priorities change. I totally see that. Okay, so there was a sensational idea. I, I mean, how can you not notice this one when you go to happyeconews.com and you see New Zealand is using drones to save dolphins. Okay, we got to talk about that because sure. we got a big Florida audience and everybody loves dolphins. So are <laughs> drones saving dolphins? So uh, the article is called New Zealand Turns to Drones to Halt Maui Dolphin Extinction. So the Maui dolphin is a subspecies. Um, they're a threatened cetacean. They're a subspecies basically of a, a very small dolphin that's only found in New Zealand. And there's only about 63 of these animals left anywhere. And that's where they're found. So they're very beautiful. They're tiny in you know dolphin comparisons. But what they've done is they've used drones to track them. Now, because they're, you know, threatened, there's a lot of money and effort going into trying to save these poor little creatures. And one of the big threats is uh, fishing. So commercial fishing nets might catch dolphins and then the dolphins would drown because, of course, they're a mammal, not a fish. So um, basically what they've been doing is flying with helicopters and air other types of aircraft or in ships or boats trying to find out where these creatures are living and where they are at certain times of the year, et cetera. So they're trying to, trying to find out what their habits are so that they can protect them. But that's really expensive. You've got aircraft, helicopter, it's you know, $900 an hour at the minimum. And it really depends upon whether you can spot the animals or not. So, and then of course, identifying a Maui dolphin from another dolphin from the air might be kind of difficult as well. So it really depends upon the people that are in the helicopter at the time. You know, it's expensive, it's dangerous, et cetera. And it's not that effective. But what they've started doing is using drones. And these drones can travel using GPS on a crisscross crossing over the ocean in a grid form. So they can spot these dolphins and then using artificial intelligence, they can recognize whether it's a Maui dolphin or virtually any other dolphin with about a 90% accuracy, which is much better than what a human can do. So first of all, you've got a much lower cost of operation because a drone is very, very inexpensive compared to a helicopter and operating it is even cheaper. And then you've got a higher effectiveness of operation and is completely safe for humans. So we don't have to worry about sending our scientists up in helicopters in bad weather. So it's really win-win. One of the other really interesting things that I found about this article, doing a little more research into it, is that while uh, fishing nets are a big problem, it's actually there's an onshore problem that's hurting these poor little guys. What's that? And that is toxoplasmosis. It's the- What? Uh, like yeah. what cat poop exactly. gives pregnant ladies? Oh. Yeah, so, so toxoplasmosis is found in fecal matter of cats, and New Zealand has a wild or a feral cat population problem. 
So they were introduced, I believe, to curb rats and other types of rodents. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, things get out of balance and we've got feral cats living on specific areas on the island. Their feces gets washed into the rivers. The rivers have fish in them. The fish go out into the ocean and then the dolphins eat the fish and then they get toxoplasmosis. So part of this program is to actually identify when and where the dolphins are in relation to cat feral cat populations on shore. And they will attempt to manage the cat populations uh, in a way that's, uh, of course, humane and, uh, and beneficial for the dolphins. That's fascinating. You know, when you're talking about the drones, it reminded me of footage I saw on the news last week. You know, almost never see this stuff on the news, but they were looking to um, help whales and there's a sick whale. And so they had a drone fly over its blowhole and take a breath sample, which I thought was so oh, wow. unintrusive, right? Like, what yeah. a great way. And then they came up with these, you know, antibiotics to give it and kind of harpoon it with the antibiotics. And I think they got three out of the five shots were a hit. So the whale's going to get better, we hope. But it's amazing when science and good intentions work together, what can be done. And yeah. it's so rare to see this on mainstream news. So we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about, well, come on, let's go with the, let's go with the really sexy topics you've got. This is, this is flying foxes in Australia. Okay, we're going <laughs> there when we come back from break. Stay tuned to Animal Party on Pet Life Radio. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Hello, we're back on Animal Party on Pet Life Radio. And my guest today is Grant Brown from HappyEcoNews.com. You should check it out. There's so many stories on there, thousands. You, it, it's just so uplifting. It's great for teenagers. It shows them all kinds of good work going on all over the world. And this stuff is really happening. We just don't hear about it. So, okay, flying foxes. I personally have flying squirrels in my little forest behind my house here, which are just amazing to watch. They're just so cool. What is a flying fox and how can a sprinkler help it? This is new to me. <laughs> well, uh, interesting anecdote. When I was a kid, my grandfather had a pet flying squirrel uh, named oh, Baby. Yeah. And uh, it grew up and it actually got returned to the wild. But I digress. A flying mm -hmm. fox is not actually a fox, I have to say. It's actually a very large bat and it's only found in Australia. It's called the, uh, the gray-headed flying fox. It's a vegetarian creature and it has a wingspan of about a meter. So they're a real, real big creature and one of the biggest bats in the world. They're extremely important to the local ecosystem. Wait, 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 wait. You're saying, oh, I'm sorry, a meter, like it's more a than meter. three yeah. feet 
More than three feet. This thing is yeah. wider than a man's shoulders, and it's a yeah. bat. That's a little scary. I gotta <laughs> it, say, I'm glad I you think said it, it could was be. vegetarian. Holy it's vegetarian. Moly. It'll come and eat eat a uh, fruit right out of your hand. I bet it would be a very friendly little bat <laughs> or big bat. If you say so. Okay. <laughs> and it's interesting because I think Australians do have a bit of a a love hate uh, or a love fear. Uh, relationship with the gray-headed flying fox because they are a large bat and I think people have um, you know just that that instant sort of moment of, of fear and revulsion when they see a bat especially these days but you know they're part of the natural ecosystem and and they deserve to be protected well they help us more than they hurt us with their insect reduction I mean we really really need them okay yeah. so why would sprinklers help these guys? Is it about fires? No. So, well, I, th I think, uh, you know, ultimately it's about climate change and uh, increasing temperatures in the forest where they live has resulted in actual, they, they have a difficult time moderating their body temperature and they're very dependent upon ambient temperature to, for their survival. And what happens is in extreme heat situations, they can't regulate their temperature to keep cool and they die. And they've had mass die-offs where, you know, walk, apparently I was reading about the biologists, they would walk into a forest and just find, you know, hundreds of these bats on the forest floor. And they're not small creatures, right? So it must be extremely disappointing mm, and disturbing to, to see something like that. But the positive is that they've decided to put sprinkler systems and just like the misters you'll find on a patio on a hot summer day, that's what they're doing for the bats. And apparently the bats were a little wary of these misters when they first got turned on. They were like, what's that sound? And they, they recoiled back a little bit afraid, but then all of a sudden they realized how it was keeping them cool. And so they congregate around these sprinkler systems and they sit there preening their their fur they basically just lap up the water you know the the bats love it and you know they're important for the ecosystem because they actually are very good at they actually poll help pollinate different species of plants they distribute seeds in their feces so a bat will eat a plant here or eat a vegetable or a, a fruit in one location and then fly to another location uh, and deposit the seeds in that area. And so without them, the entire forest landscape would change. And so we need that biodiversity. And so they're a very important and integral part of the forest system in specific areas in Australia. So then they said that as the, they had a recent very warm spike in temperature there, and they had not a single creature die. So, so it's a success story. Nice, yeah. really wonderful, happy eco news story to read about. Well, it was hard to select. I mean, there's just so much on your website. <laughs> really, I was blown away. And I, I research this stuff. I'm always looking for happy news and good news about animals, especially. And um, it's hard to find usually. So I was just so delighted to find all this. I really hope my listeners are going to send their teenagers here for their projects and research and go hear themselves. And, yeah, you know, the next time you feel down, just Check it out. It is so uplifting. We've actually had teachers email us and showing us that they send their students to Happy Eco News for to do a quick report for extra credits. And I think it's the teachers recognizing that these students need to have a little bit of an uplift and uh, are saying the extra credits are basically, you know, a, a lure to get the kids to actually go and see something good about the world. So it's quite empowering and, and quite, it makes me feel great that there's people actually, you know, recognizing the value. Well, you know, I had an argument with my teenage daughter about <laughs> you 
and oh. your website. <laughs> yes. And uh, right after I did the show, the last show, and she was saying, I said, you know, there's so many ways you can get involved. And, and she said, yeah, I know I can use less and I can eat less. I, I don't eat meat anyway. And I can this and I can that. And she starts naming all these tiny little things she could do. I could I we already recycle. We already compost. She's going through the things. She said, someday I can get an, an, you know, a, an electric car. She said, but it's not enough. I can't make a difference. And I said, well, how about get the eOceans app and start reporting what you see when you're visiting the beach? Well, how about and I start naming all these things I saw on your website? And I was like, yes, thank you, Grant. I've got arguments now for this, for this <laughs> malaise, this, you know, I got nothing. I can't do anything. It's all hopeless. I've got some ammunition now. So we're going to go to break and we're going to come back and talk about a couple more stories on Animal Party Pet Life Radio. And we're here with Grant Brown from HappyEcoNews.com. Stay tuned. For those fortunate to have experienced the deep bond and unconditional love of a companion animal, the death that follows can be one of the most difficult and misunderstood losses to go through. Many times, this devastating loss goes unrecognized and trivialized by family and friends, leaving grieving pet parents struggling to find healthy ways to cope with the loss. In And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal for healing the loss of a pet, Dr. Julianne Corbin calls attention to the difficulties unique to the loss of a beloved pet and provides an interactive and compassionate guide to help you process your loss and work towards coming to a place of peace and healing. For those interested in journal therapy and looking for a professionally written and compassionate resource to help understand and reconcile the grief associated with the loss of your pet, this book is for you. And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal by Julianne Corbin is now available for purchase on Amazon and other major book retailers. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Hello, we're back on Animal Party on Pet Life Radio with my guest from HappyEcoNews.com, Grant Brown. And um, I do want to ask you about the sanctuary for wild dogs of Asia, because we often think of the dogs of Asia as having an especially difficult plight. And I find it a really strange contrast because the dogs of Asia are also some of them, the lucky ones, the most pampered in the world. And yet there are others that are so mistreated or even thought of as food. And so I want to know what is this about the sanctuary for the wild dogs of Asia? So I'm going to uh, try and say the name of it. It's called the Wayanad uh, Sanctuary, and um, it's located in India. And I'm not sure exactly where in India. India is a huge country, so um, I would imagine it's in a fairly rural area. But uh, the Wayanad Wildlife Sanctuary was set up to provide habitat for threatened tigers and elephants in the area. And um, recent studies have shown that it also provides habitat for the, the large Asiatic wild dog which is an endangered carnivore native to South Asia. So um, basically, you know, the, the glory animals are the elephants and the tigers and they get all the press, you know, there's huge efforts to, to save tigers. And um, that's great. I mean, you know, tigers are an, sort of um, an iconic species for South Asia, but in this large 
tract of wild land that's been set aside for these, you know, large carnivores and uh, elephants, they found that these Asiatic wild dogs are actually thriving in there as well. And the, the interesting thing about this is that the scientists had no idea. They had no idea that large packs of wild dogs were living amongst the other creatures in the forest. And I think it's important because the fact that you can have a large carnivore that's so endangered living in an area like that without anybody's knowledge just shows to me anyway that there is hope. There's so much that we don't know about the world. And it also shows that if you just give these creatures a break, you just give them a place where they're, not, where they're protected and where they've got enough food, they will bounce back. And it reminds me of a story that was also on the Happy Eco News about the El Hua River in Washington State. And um, there was a dam across that river for about 100 years. And virtually, it was a power generation dam that was used for whatever industry, perhaps uh, logging or something like that. And the advent of the dam basically killed the river from a certain point upstream. And it really changed the downstream portion of the river as well. No longer was silt flowing out of the ocean and into the, or out of the river into the ocean and the beach was being degraded and everything else like that. They took the dam out and then the next year, the entire river had changed. The silt had flown out. There was a big beach at the mouth of the river in the ocean. The steelhead and salmon had returned. With that, the carnivores, the wolves, the coyotes, raccoons, bears, even wild deer were all dependent upon the different nutrients that were deposited from Wild River. So five years later, it's a thriving ecosystem again that you could basically, if you were to look at it, you wouldn't even know that there ever was a dam there. And so coming back to the original story of the Wayanad Wildlife Sanctuary, you know, it shows to me that if you just give these these animals a break, you can actually find some some real positives and they um, they will bounce back very quickly. And so it's, it's a very, very exciting prospect that if we just leave stuff alone, nature will return. I love it that they didn't know they were there. You know, I mean, there's often times where we'll be walking, you know, in, I'll be walking with my dogs in a normal situation and there'll be coyotes and I won't know they're there, a whole pack of them, but my dogs know. My dogs definitely yeah, the know, dogs right? are great oh, to have around yeah, that way. They know. But, um, and so 20, 30 coyotes could sneak up on you. Why couldn't there be a wild dog population that you wouldn't hear and you wouldn't see? And if they've learned to fear man, then absolutely you wouldn't hear or see them. I think that's amazing. It makes me think of all the, the many, I mean, every, every year there's some new species found somewhere, some thing they never thought existed that's all of a sudden discovered under the earth or in a hidden lake or someplace. And then there's the mystery animals, right? Like the Sasquatch and, you know, (laughs) the things that maybe, maybe not, who knows? But it does give me hope that there could be a whole world out there we don't know and we haven't ruined. Every time I go into the mountains, I hope to see a Sasquatch. And every time I go to the ocean, I hope to see a mermaid. So, you know, I'm hopeful. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and the unicorn, I, I must say, <laughs> yeah. is, would be much appreciated. I would like to ride my, uh, you know, give a lift on my unicorn to the mermaid <laughs> as uh, we head off to visit the Sasquatch. That would be an incredible adventure. But it's nice to know that these animals can bounce back so thoroughly. And, you know, in other ways, too. I mean, we do change the climate. We change the temperatures of the waters and we change all kinds of things. 
But sometimes the animals just move and they do all right. I mean, in my area, there's so many birds here that aren't supposed to be here, but they're mm. now here year after year after year after year because where they used to be isn't so great anymore. And this climate is somehow more hospitable to them than it used to be. And I think that as we restore those places, they'll move back again. But, you know, it's, it's amazing to see how, how much fluidity there is in these species. If we just give them a place to weather the storm, to come back, to gather themselves, to gather their numbers, if we can start working on cleaning up the places they need, they will come back right? They will. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what, that's the beauty of, uh, I think nature in general is that it is extremely resilient. We have this sort of, um, and I, and I say this often, we have this ego or this hubris that allows humans to think that we basically are the be all and end all of everything and that we're detached from nature. And I think that we're much closer. We evolved in it and around it, and we have a connection to it that we need but it's also much more powerful than we give it credit for. And so I think that, you know, just like I say, giving these creatures a break, gives them the opportunity to thrive. Just giving nature a break, a river a break, gives it an opportunity to regenerate and to heal. And I think that our entire planet, if we can find a way that we can stop destroying forests or at least preserve large tracts of the areas of land, uh, for biodiversity, for uh, carbon sequestration, and and those kinds of things, um, I think we'll be okay. And you know, one of the things, Deb, that I really have found, and you know, I, I've gone from being somewhat of a pessimist a few years ago to actually feeling really optimistic about the future with uh, of the planet, and that is, you know, this ability for nature to regenerate if we give it a chance. And what I'm seeing is that we are now giving it a chance. You know, it, it's new policies in, in government level. All of these things are allowing nature to actually heal. And, uh, and I think we're going to get there. Well, you know, we sort of touched on this anyway about discovering a new species. And I, I remember there's a story on happyeconews.com about an, an ermine discovered yeah. in the Haida in the Queen Charlotte's sort of northwest Pacific, north, north of Seattle and kind of west and south of Alaska in the ocean. There are these islands and they discovered these um, these ermines and they're, they've been hidden for 300,000 years. Like nobody knows these guys. So yeah. how did that happen? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's some secrets out there. There's there some good secrets and we just have to give it a chance to come back. I agree with you totally on that. I want people to go to your site so they can look at all these good news stories, but also there's so much on there about how they can get involved themselves, you know, how they can get an app so they can participate in the recovery of the oceans. Here we see sturgeon, which I don't think people see all over the <laughs> world. You know, they're massive and they leap out of the water in the Fraser River and you could just sit and have a coffee and watch them. And your website talks about bringing nature into your life, doing those little things, stop at a pier, pull over, get into the forest. We talked last time about how your dog forces you to get out into, your, into nature. And I just wanted to give a shout out to the cat owners because the cat brings nature into you. Watch your cat, <laughs> right? Your cat is a natural creature. So having a cat, just that alone brings you closer to nature. But please check out Grant's site, happyeconews.com. And you will find so many things, whether you're interested in birds like condors or fish or um, sea mammals, dogs, cats, 
there's so many things all about the initiative to get private lands into the conservation and yeah there's just so much there so much there and so much there for you to take away if you're planning a trip and you want to do something good on your trip maybe you can time it to release some baby turtles maybe there's something there for you so check it out go to happyeconews.com and uh thank you so much for joining us today grant Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure, and I'd love to come back anytime you want me. Oh, nice. Okay, I'll take you up on that. All right, everybody. Until next time, from Happy Eco News and from me, Deb Wolf, and Animal Party and Pet Life Radio, be good to your animals. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.